You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. So welcome to our event. If you want to get seated, we'll start with some comments. Uh, we're going to do a conversation about Mac Pro and Apple's offerings for Pro users. To get started, uh, I'm going to give some comments. I'm Daniel Arndilger. I'm going to be talking about the, sort of the context of Apple's offerings for pro users and what's uh, changed in the last 33 years of the Macintosh, and particularly the last uh, few years. And uh, Victor Marks is going to be talking about some of the software stuff for pro users. And then we'll open it up to some conversation. And uh, but I want to thank you for attending. So we think of, of computing as just sort of a, a linear progression of advancement. Uh, this slide of the representative computers from every five years, it just gets a little bit better. Um, that's not really a realistic depiction of what's happening in the industry. Apple keeps changing in every company uh, in response to new technology that's coming up and, and the demand from consumers, which changes. Uh, one of the most obvious things happened in, in 1984 with the, when Apple came out with the Macintosh. And it was a different uh, sort of a branch in, in technology in terms of the approach to computing. So instead of uh, a text box that you're typing into, like the DOS PC, Macintosh introduced this idea of graphical computing to the mainstream that was, um, up until that point, it was sort of a experiment in Xerox Park. And so they brought it, made it a, a mainstream offering and for a while, that was kind of a controversial way to, to do things. Uh, if you remember the being in the 80s, there were a lot of people that talked about the Macintosh as if it was sort of a, a toy, a graphical thing. And if you had a real computer, if you were a pro user, you used a, a PC. Um, but 10 years later, that progression changed with uh, the Windows PC changing into a basically a Macintosh. They appropriated a lot of the technology that, that Apple had created for uh, graphical computing. And uh, Apple also kind of converged its offerings. The original Macintosh was in many ways similar to the Mac Pro that Apple came out with a few years ago. And then it was an integrated box without a lot of expansion potential. And over the first 10 years of the Macintosh, that really changed uh, with the, the more expensive Macintoshes had the same kind of expandability and slots and things that that PCs did. And so there were a couple problems that started emerging for Apple. I remember the mid-90s, Apple was considered a beleaguered company. You couldn't, you couldn't say Apple without using the word beleaguered in front of it. And part of the problem was uh, if you compared what Apple was doing in its pro computers with what, what other companies were offering with PCs, the biggest differentiation was that Apple cost more. And the, the main draw that Apple had with their software was also starting to kind of run out of steam because the, the sophistication of the, the software level behind the Mac OS, the classic Mac OS, was starting to get kind of long in the tooth. And so one of the things that changed that was Next, which was Steve Jobs left Apple in the mid-80s and came back in the mid-90s. And during that interim when he was out, he basically developed with this the team at Next uh, developed this more sophisticated software uh, foundation for computing. And it uh, had a foundation on top of Unix and sophisticated development frameworks. 
And that was really fortunate because it gave Apple, at this point where there wasn't a lot of differentiation between Windows PCs and Macintoshes, it gave Apple a way to use some of the technology that they developed to uh, gave them a company to buy to get back on track. And a couple of the things that really uh, helped Apple in, in buying Next was the more sophisticated software underneath uh, a foundation on Unix and also the compositing graphics engine that starting in just shortly after 2000, Apple released it as the product of Mac OS X. And uh, within a few years, that's, that was 17 years ago, um, Apple is now the fifth largest PC maker in the world, and their uh, shipments of Macs have continually grown uh, in a world where PCs have keep dropping down in their average selling prices. So uh, that helped Apple remain competitive in, a, in the market. And across, after the first few years of, of Mac OS X with Tiger in 2005, uh, Mac, uh, Windows or Microsoft actually got pretty concerned about the pace of technology that Apple was doing. And in addition to what Apple was doing with the Mac, of course, they're also selling iPods and that was making a lot of their money for them. And it was really important to be able to have enough revenue to have the critical mass to develop the kind of software that Apple needed to remain competitive. And something similar happened uh, at the same time in that same kind of era, just shortly after that, Apple started working on another sort of advance in technology to make computing available to people on a new level, and that was with iOS. And a lot of times you think about iOS as just being sort of a phone product that Apple came up with, but really it was a, a new way of looking at uh, an interface and uh, development of technology that made it more accessible to, to common people that, that weren't really interested in running a computer. And uh, if you think about computing just a few years ago, like before iOS, it was kind of a common thing to have the problem of uh, losing your data. So if you're working on a document, you didn't save it, and you lose power, you've just lost a bunch of work. And that's one of the problems that Apple sort of, sort of solved with iOS and then brought that solution back to uh, Mac OS X with iCloud and, and just constantly saving that, the model of, of not uh, manually saving things. And another thing that we used to have an issue with that's not really a problem on iOS is making a mistake uh, in your boot settings or something and rendering your computer unbootable. That doesn't really happen on iOS devices. And you know, Steve Jobs said that he talked about the, the progression of iOS kind of like in compared it to cars and being sort of like cars and trucks and the market for cars expanding uh, and going beyond what the old truck market. I like to kind of think of it as uh, more of a model of you know, in the, in the PC, in the Mac uh, kind of platform, it's like piloting a helicopter and getting into iOS is like getting into a car. There's a lot of things you can't do when you get into a car if you're a helicopter pilot. You can't take off vertically and, and do amazing things. But there's a lot of things you also can't do in terms you know, that are lethal. So for a lot of people, they being in a car is a lot more accessible than, than trying to drive something like a, a PC. But of course, for... Uh, Pro users, which I imagine that a lot of people here, we need to be helicopter pilots because you're doing things that, where iOS is actually not powerful enough for what you want to do. And so rather than replacing the Mac platform with iOS, Apple really did an augmentive thing, especially starting in 2010 with the iPad, where uh, 
Apple continued to invest in Mac OS X, and ever since then, Apple keeps selling more Macs every year. But at the same time, they're selling as many more. Uh, the revenues from iPad are similar to the revenues from, that actually been slightly greater. Over the last three years, I think the average quarterly revenue that each product generates is about $6 billion, which is twice as much as what Apple was making from all of its Macs just 10 years ago. So uh, it really drives on the point that iOS is in some ways acting like the iPod and helping Apple to afford to uh, develop Macs for the much smaller audience that doesn't have the critical mass uh, to do it by itself if Apple is only making Macs. And it's not only augmentative, it's also sort of defensive because there's a number of other things that people have tried, whether netbooks or uh, Google's Chromebooks and a number of other sort of like simpler computers that if Apple didn't have their own strategy for iOS, uh, that would, it would be more difficult to uh, keep, keep Mac OS X developing as a, something that's suitable for pro users if they didn't have the revenue driving that. Um, this is one of the images that he had earlier, and it's a little bit uh, deceptive in that it shows that uh, if you look at the, the green on there, that's the iPhone. And above the iPhone, you have iPad and, and Mac in, in tan and blue there. And these are percentages of revenue while Apple's revenues have been going dramatically since this goes back to, to 1997. But if you look at the, the Mac and the iPad on the right edge of the chart, those are representing around $6 billion in revenue. And if you look at the middle of the chart around 2006, that entire thing is about half as much revenue. So the, it's not that the Mac is shrinking, it's that the Mac is shrinking as a proportion of Apple's revenues. But those other revenues uh, are not, they're, they're helping development of the Mac as opposed to like replacing it. And another trend that you see there in the middle, looking at when Apple was splitting up its revenues between portables and des desktops, you see another trend that's happening within the Mac itself is that people are increasingly buying uh, portable systems in instead of desktop Macs. And uh, more recently, since 2015, uh, I guess the new Mac Pro came out in what, 2013? So in 2013, Apple came out with a new design for the Mac Pro. And since then, they've also released the, the iPad Pro, which are both a couple of products that critics have looked at as, you know, the Mac Pro doesn't serve all Mac, all Pro users. And the iPad Pro is something that Apple's been uh, targeting as sort of a replacement for the PC. Uh, it, neither one is a replacement for uh, Pro users and Macs entirely. And there's been a lot of question about what Apple's doing in the future. And they've cleared that up uh, recently with their comments saying that, you know, we're going to uh, make a more modular Mac Pro in the next coming year. But then also when you look at the replacement of uh, portable systems like the MacBook Pro and also the iMac is becoming more uh, useful to a lot of Pro users than it, it was in the past when it was more of a consumer product. And then another constraint Apple has, and not just with its own um, market and the demand, but they're also constrained by Intel because Intel is also affected by the changes happening in the PC market. So for example, uh, in the last few years, the, the, the plateauing and sort of decrease in general PC sales 
has meant that Intel is putting more of their effort into making mobile uh, chips that are targeted towards laptops and, and things like that, or in the server end. And so Apple is somewhat constrained uh, in the pro Mac category because uh, they don't have full control over what chips are going to be coming out that they can use. And that also has some effect on other products like the Mac Pro. So I recently did an article talking about how, uh, you know, what, what I was going to be doing in the future. And a couple of things that we kind of threw out there is just sort of a, as in this thought piece was, will Apple uh, license Mac OS to other PC makers like Dell or, or HP or something like that to build hardware? And that doesn't seem uh, likely. Uh, and some of the reasons why is, you know, if you look at kind of just recently too, ours had an article on the Hackintosh and people building PCs that can run Mac OS that are very specific to their needs that to do something in the kind of pro category. Um, that's not the best way to solve that because the money from hardware, the money from the Macintosh comes from hardware. And so by seeding that hardware to somebody else or letting people do their own hardware means that there's less money to, to put ahead the, the uh, continue the sophistication of the platform. And so one of the things that I think is going to be happening, and this is what Victor is talking about a lot of software. And if you look at the software that Apple uh, provides, a lot of that software is now free, and it's sort of supporting the development of or the sales of hardware. And so the the top two things there, are Mac OS X and development tools, those are things that used to cost money. And in fact, in the in the era of um, Next, development tools for web objects were something like fifty thousand dollars a seat, and now it's basically free. The second line of apps there, the, the iWork apps that Apple just made free, iWork and um, GarageBand and iMovie, those are all pretty competitive apps that uh, Apple now uses just to make their platform better. And then they have pro apps like Final Cut Pro and Logic, and um, there's also pro photography apps that Apple entered the market and pulled out, and they, they went with photos, um, which has upset people who liked the product that Apple is doing, but uh, there's also uh, the, the market reality of what people are buying and whether people are wanting a product specifically from Apple or whether Adobe or other companies are serving that need better. And so uh, talking about kind of the software and what's going forward, we'll have Victor address that and then we'll open it up to some questions if you have comments about the pro market. I'll turn it over to you, Victor. All right, let's see if I can, there we go. Let's do that. This episode is brought to you by Jamf Now. When you first start your business, it's pretty easy to keep track of your own computer and phone. But as you grow and start to buy more tech for your employees, it gets harder to keep track of everyone's Macs, iPhones, and iPads. Thankfully, Jamf Now lets you manage your Apple devices from anywhere. Maybe you need to secure the iPad that your sales rep lost while you're in different locations. Well, Jamf Now makes that, and a lot more, much easier. Configure settings, protect sensitive information, even lock or wipe a device from anywhere. Jamf Now secures your stuff so you can focus on your business instead. No IT expertise needed. And as a special offer to our listeners, you can start securing your business today by setting up your first three devices for free. Add more for just two bucks a month per device. Go to jamf.com slash appleinsider to create a free account and set up your three free devices today. That's j-a-m-f dot com slash appleinsider. And one of those. 
as Dan said, I'm Victor Marks. I, uh, I write for Apple Insider and co-host the Apple Insider podcast. And I'm really pleased to be here tonight. I'm happy to see all you come out. It, it, as I was thinking about this, it really seems strange to me to think that we've had this company providing tools that enabled the whole field to exist for 40 years. And, and as much as we think about them having slowed down, especially in terms of releasing an updated Mac Pro uh, or, or neglected users, there are a ton of things that they're working on. And so this is a night to talk about pro use, and I'll get to it, but I, I sort of want to rehearse the history a little bit about the pro user and our tools. So I've got a timeline here. Let's see there. All right. Back in 1985, uh, a company called Mark of the Unicorn released a product called Digital Performer. And this came really close on the heels of the first Mac being released. And what Digital Performer did was it allowed you to use the Mac to work with a MIDI controller. They've got a, a Roland DX7 in the picture there to create digital music. And, and before the Mac and before MIDI, you, you ended up doing this with patches and racks and, and physical hardware. And so for the first time, we were able to actually have synthesis happening in the Mac and begin to sequence. It was pretty cool. At about the same time, in July of 85, we got Aldous PageMaker. And Aldous PageMaker was the brainchild of a guy named Paul Bernard. Paul Bernard was a journalist who wrote for the Star Tribune of Minneapolis. And he quit that job, moved to Seattle, and started writing this page layout system for some custom hardware. Well, the custom hardware folded up, and he ended up going to the Mac. And it wasn't because he wanted to write for the Mac. It's because he didn't have a choice. It was the best system that could do what he wanted to do. It was the only thing capable. And by 1988, PageMaker had topped two, 2 million in sales. They were riding pretty high. Dollars. And we, hmm? dollars. dollars. And yeah, dollars, not units. And they... Uh, you know, they started facing competition from companies like Quark Express and uh, two years later, we got Adobe Photoshop one, uh, Thomas Knoll and uh, John Knoll. John Knoll was one of the directors of special effects on the first Star Wars movies. He worked at Industrial Light and Magic and he gave up working for ILM to build Photoshop with his brother. And, you know, that, that launched a whole field. It launched careers. This is a fun one. This is Notator Logic from 1993. Now, Notator Logic was a, uh, a system for sequencing, and we've got up here tempo, intro, chorus, verse, chorus. We've got piano, drums, 12 strings. We've got instruments. We've got parts of a song. We've got structure, and we're sequencing. And we can do MIDI and quantize to the beat. It's really capable and all happening on that very tiny, you know, original classic Mac screen. This is important. We come back to Logic later. By 1995, Adobe acquired PageMaker. Uh, PageMaker was struggling. They couldn't keep up with the attack that they felt in the press and public from Quark Express, and Adobe wanted to have the product. They kept it until about 2000, at which point it became InDesign. Now, this is from May 11, 1988. But the, the groundwork for this acquisition started a little bit earlier. 
what happened here is that uh, Steve Jobs began his return to Apple in 1997, and he started looking around for things that the Mac was missing, that the Mac needed in, in terms of, and, and the users of the Mac needed. What was going to make an ecosystem uh, sort of uh, beneficial cycle between user and, and Apple? And one of the things that he realized was that the size of hard drives was increasing. And what were you going to do with all of this extra hard drive space now that we had four gig and six gig hard drives that they could put in computers? And the answer was video. They went to Macromedia. Macromedia had a product called KeyGrip. Macromedia at the time thought that Flash was the future and they wanted to get out of video editing. So Apple, looking at the introduction of the iMac and looking at their Power Mac, wanted to deliver video editing to the masses and they made moves to buy KeyGrip from Macromedia. Uh, but only if the entire development team would come with it. They, they wouldn't just buy the product, they had to have all of the developers. They ran into a problem. There was an unexpected decision from their former ally in desktop publishing, Adobe. So the, the key grip um, come final cut group had barely settled into their new offices when Apple management met with Adobe to consider a request to shut down the whole project. Uh, they, they'd already had the transaction completed, they had everything public, and Adobe wanted it axed. The, the threat was that if they didn't, Adobe was going to take Premiere away from Mac and you know, take their ball and go home. They really made their displeasure known. But despite this rebuff, despite the, uh, the threat from Adobe, uh, Steve Jobs knew he was in a tough position. So in order to placate Adobe, they presented a business case that said that Final Cut was drastically different from Premiere and ultimately beneficial for everyone. These two things aren't the same at all. Uh, Adobe products and, and you know, if this dilemma escalated, Apple would lose a critical supply partner and it would reignite the whole fear of bankruptcy. But uh, Adobe settled and was mostly placated. I think they, they drug their heels a little bit a couple of years later when it came time for the OS X conversion. But they, for the most part, were, were tentatively okay with Apple having key grip. Now that was 1998. And in September of 2000, we got the OS X public beta. And this is where everything really began to change. Just thinking about this, from, from 85 to 95 and then 95 to 2000, these aren't that many years when we think of them in segments like that. But it's huge sweeping changes in terms of the capability of these tools and what we're able to do. So we get up to 2002 when Apple acquires Logic. This is what became of that old notator Logic. It grew up, it got color, it got a lot more capabilities. At this point, Logic was also cross-platform. It worked on Windows as well. And this acquisition was, was one of the ones that I remember very vividly because it annoyed so many musicians. Uh, they, they couldn't stand that Apple was buying up their product because the Windows version was discontinued immediately. The Mac version went on to power GarageBand as well as Logic. Uh, and it became part of the iLeft suite. You know, Logic was, was the pro app, and GarageBand became a part of iMovie, iTunes, and iPhone. In 2007, we got the 30-year uh, the banner at Macworld in San Francisco. This was when, you know, the first 30 years were just the beginning. They introduced the iPhone. But I also think of this as, as what began the consumerization of Apple. 
where we had iPods, iMovie, and iDVD for consumers. But you know, now we're, we're getting into um, the focus being consumers as opposed to being pros. Now, I've got up on the screen iMovie 08, which happened in August of 2007. And the reason the whole iMovie 08 debacle happened is this. Th this app was never intended to be iMovie. I iMovie started out back in 97 when Steve Jobs hired a fellow that he'd worked with at Next and worked with at Apple previously, uh, a man by the name of Glenn Reed. And so he had Randy Abilos, who came over with KeyGrip and had also worked on Premiere. And he had Glenn Reed, who did iMovie. Those two teams were kept separate. Uh, in, in classic Apple fashion, they had completely separate rooms, completely separate developments, and they taped up black banners on the inside of the windows so that they couldn't peer in and cheat and see what the others were working on. And the original iMovie was, uh, as, well, as Glenn described it to me, he said the original iMovie was a crap, a crap detection removal. You, you detect your crap, you find the crap, you throw it out. And it was destructive. When you deleted the trash in iMovie, it went away. And that offended Randy Ubilos because in, in a nonlinear editor, why should anything ever be destructive? You have all this hard disk space. It doesn't make sense to throw out your footage. And so the two fought over that. And this was where Randy won. What happened was that this was not iMovie. This was an application called First Cut. And Randy wrote First Cut for his own private use. The idea was that you, you sorted out your clips, you made a rough cut, and then you imported an XML list from this into Final Cut so that everything had already been done and you just moved quickly from this and then into your real tool. Um, people saw it around Apple. They asked him to tack on a few more features and it became iMovie. And in 2011, Apple launched Final Cut 10. This was another one where users were up in arms, right? There was a great parody video that Conan O'Brien ran on his show about just how bad this tool was. Because when it was introduced, it didn't have many of the features that the prior version had had. A lot of things were lost in that transition initially. Um, the reason for this is, is because Final Cut had been carried along across from the classic Mac OS 9 into Mac OS 10. It had been revamped from PowerPC to working on Intel. It, it had gone through a large number of these transitions. It had gained color correction. It had gained all kinds of things. It had gained, uh, you know, it initially started out as, as just analog video, then it became DV, then it became HDV. It had a lot of capabilities going on. But when you looked at the code underneath the covers, that last version right before Final Cut 10 still said key grip and macromedia in a lot of the strings. There was a ton of legacy code there that had really been stretched to the, the, within an inch of its life. So they did the smart thing. They re-architected from the ground up. Yes, they threw out all the uh, code that people relied upon, but they had to. It was the only way to make a clean transition and with a clean slate, start re-architecting from the ground up, building it the right way. And eventually, over time, they've added a lot of those tools back in, and it's, it's made sense. It's, uh, it's sort of restored the functionality that people relied upon. So the Macintosh and PageMaker and laser printers created desktop publishing. Apple couldn't do it alone. 
like I said, Paul Bernard, who made PageMaker, didn't do it on Mac because he wanted to. He did it because he didn't have a choice. Mac was the only system that offered what he needed. The Mac and Director and QuickTime created the edutainment market. Apple couldn't do it alone. And you know, there was a time when we thought that shipping, shipping CD-ROMs with Director on them would last forever. Now, those days are gone, but it was a huge market at the time. Uh, there was a game called Myst, and Myst was composed entirely on a Quadra, and it was basically HyperCard and Director. And it was a hugely successful game. So the, the line in the old commercial was, you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. But the Apple of today isn't that Apple, and it isn't really even the Apple of 1997 or even the Apple of 2007 anymore. So much has changed since those days. So I thought I'd look back really quickly at what their, their sort of foundational mission statement was at those times. You know, who, who is that Apple? Well, Steve Jobs' mission statement for Apple in 1980 was to make a contribution, contribution to the world by making tools for the mind that advance humankind. And this is a super lofty statement. This is a hugely lofty statement because we don't even know who those customers are other than their customers. We don't know anything about, you know, what, what kind of tools they are other than their tools for the mind. And they're just going to somehow advance humankind. It's a very, very pie in the sky kind of thing. And it's, it's hard to build a business when you can't focus on who those customers are or what you're selling. Here we know why, but we don't have anything that extends from that. Fortunately, he got a chance to do it again. So he came back in 1997, and he said that we're going to provide relevant, compelling solutions that customers can only get from Apple. So now we know that it's going to be relevant, and it's going to be compelling, and it comes from Apple. We still don't have a good idea of who the customers are, but this is a lot better of a focus. By 2007, they came up with this one. Create devices that will form the hub of the digital living room where audio and visual content will be available on demand and can be networked seamlessly across multiple devices. Now, if you think about it, that's really what they've been doing since about 2003 when they finally had the full uh, iLife suite together. You know, they had, they had iMovie, iDVD, GarageBand, iPhoto, iTunes. So this was all about having the, the Mac as the center of the hub and everything else as a spoke. By 2009, Tim Cook says, we believe that we're on the face of the earth to make great products, and that's not changing. We're constantly focusing on innovating. We believe in the simple, not the complex. We believe that we need to own and control the primary technologies behind the products that we make and participate only in markets where we can make a significant contribution. We believe in saying no to thousands of projects so that we can really focus on the few that are truly important and meaningful to us. That's that's helpful, but it's kind of back to that lofty statement again. Um, you know, I, it, it talks about making sure that they own the, the products that they're working with, the technology that they're working with, so they don't fall victim to something like Intel not making desktop processors, or, you know, in a previous lifetime, it was Motorola who didn't make processors fast enough, or IBM who didn't make processors fast enough for a Power Mac G5 kind of thing. But at, at the core, for Apple, it's always been about starting with that consumer or customer experience first and working backwards to the technology. You know, what, what kind of incredible benefit can we give to the customer where we take the customer, not starting with let's sit down with the engineers, we'll figure out what awesome technologies we have, and then we'll figure out how we're going to market that. It, it starts with the developers. And it can't really be done without developers. A Apple used to court developers. 
actively, right? They, besides the developers conference, they would reach out, they would have meetings with developers. They used to have meetings with Panic and talk about, you know, what was Panic planning next after they done Sound Jam, right? You remember that story? Uh, well, they came up and said, don't work on that. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, so at, at the time, there were two different products competing in, in Apple's eye to become iTunes. Sound Jam was one of them. That was Panics. The other was one that I'm blanking Cassidy on. Embarrassing. And Cassie and Green. Yeah. And um, they, Pan Panic was slow about responding to phone calls, so Apple went with the other product. But they had the courtesy to have Panic into their, their meeting room and talk about them, and, and Steve Jobs leaned over the table and said, so after this, because we're basically going to kill this product for you, you're not going to be able to sell any more Sound Jam, um, what are you working on next? And, and Cable, who is the, uh, the head of Panic, looked at Steve and said, well, you know, I've thought about a way to organize all of my photographs. Everyone puts their photos in a shoebox, and I, I think we need to organize those somehow. And Steve looked at him and said, yeah, don't do that. You know, whether it was getting Adobe to rewrite Photoshop for OS X, Quark to rewrite Quark Express for OS X, or Adobe to not give up on the Mac completely because they were offended by, by Apple having Final Cut Pro, a Apple really pushed and, and courted developers, which is what that guy used to say a lot. So, you know, we have, we have two problems. Development for iOS is not a profitable endeavor. You can't earn a living solely making apps for iOS. The app sale price is low, and people expect apps to be free with in-app purchase. But a Apple has told us repeatedly, time and time again, that we're living in a post-PC world, or that we're moving to a post-PC world, or that the iPad is, is their vision, right? And the clearest indicator of what Apple's going to do is to listen to them. Tim Cook tells us all the time, the iPad is the clearest expression of our future of personal computing. Uh, Steve Jobs had the vision of slotting it in between the iPhone and the Mac, the way that you were describing with cars and trucks and helicopters. Uh, wh wh what's a Mac if it's not a personal computer? And the iPad is, is even more of a personal computer, really. So if the iPad is the clearest expression and the success of the Mac was based on pro apps, I, I kind of feel like we have to talk about the unthinkable which is pro apps on iOS. You know, Apple has is, is said that they're going to introduce a Mac Pro and it's going to be a modular Mac Pro for whatever that means um, within the next year, perhaps. They, you know, they've said next year sometime. Um, but you get the feeling that even though they're doing it, that that's not where their long-term vision is. So I was thinking about well, how do we define a pro app anyway? And I'm very glad that I had help from this fellow. This is Michael Johnson, who is uh, one of the technical leads over at Pixar. And he says that a pro app is a collection of small capabilities that's been streamlined to accomplish larger tasks, but it's also configurable by the user. So it's about these tasks to be done and streamlining them and being able to configure them. Um, Federico Vitici is a fellow who writes Mac stories. He's uh, one of our competitors at Apple Insider. But he's one of these people that have adopted the iPad completely. He uses it for everything he does. And even when he was writing up one of the recent iPads and how great an iPad it is, he says, for all of its advances, the iPad is still surprisingly not suited for common computing tasks, such as downloading files with a web browser, attaching documents to an email message, referencing two distinct files, 
or pieces of information at once while doing something else. So there was a time not too long ago when the iPad was solely about consumption and not creation. We're, we're in a progression right now. We're sort of caught in the middle between a progression from the most intensive input methods to the least user-intensive input methods. It's, it's the path of, le path of least friction that wins, right? When we're talking about something that's always listening is easier than removing a device from your pocket, unlocking it, holding down a button. You know, saying, hey, Siri, your watch, for example. Uh, that least friction is what wins. So the, the mouse was invented sometime before 1965, patented in 1967 by a guy named Doug Engelbart in Bill English. We didn't really adopt it until 1984, and not in a widespread way until 1990 when, when Windows 3.0 picked up the mouse as well. So that's either 21 or 25 years, depending on your count of having a mouse. We've had the keyboard for a long time too. I've got an Apple Lisa keyboard here with the, uh, the current keyboard. And you know, for a little bit of the changes, it's remarkably the same. The keyboard knows infinite words, but you have to know the vocabulary and syntax to use them. And you know, if we're talking about pro apps, you have to know the keyboard shortcuts, and they make these cool little overlays, these silicone overlays with all of the uh, shortcuts on them. Uh, in the early days, all users were pro users. All we had was a command line, and we'd type in programs that we'd get from magazines or books, kind of thing. Then we got the mouse, and the mouse knows a very small vocabulary, right? It knows point, click, click and drag, double click, contextual menu click, or right click for those not concerned with the false dichotomy of left-right preference. The, uh, the, the whole idea of the Apple Pro Mouse came about because Jobs walked into Ives Design Lab one day and they were scrambling to hide all the unfinished prototypes so that he wouldn't pick one and grab it out and say, that's what we're doing. They missed one. He picked it up and said, this one has no buttons. It's buttonless. That's exactly what we're doing. And all the designers kind of shrunk and, and felt the pit in their stomach grow that day because uh, they had to figure out how do you make a mouse with no buttons at all. We've had touch for ages, although the touch renaissance began in 2007. And this is Fingerworks. Fingerworks made these touch-sensitive multi-touch keyboards, gesture pads. They had a replacement for the power book. They were the inventors of multi-touch as we know it. And it's actually their technology that is in your, all of your iPhones and iPads right now. Apple bought them, took it, made the phone. With touch, you have to know gestures, but mostly things are exposed to the user on the screen. We, we discovered that if you have too many gestures, it's really difficult. There was a, an iPhoto for iOS app that had lots of hidden gestures, none of them discoverable, and it was a nightmare because none of them were obvious. We're, we're, you know, I put this slide up with the hello computer, Scotty talking to the mouse. What, what happens when our tasks are computer-centric because computers are the tools available to us, right? We're used to using the keyboard, so we always think that we have to use the keyboard. What happens when we change tools? So first, we had Scotty talking to the mouse. And then several years later, we can actually talk to the computer. That's how this works, is, is that we have science fiction. We have this idea of being able to do something. And then 20 years later or so, 30 years later, it becomes possible. The technology catches up. The developers remember that we, that was an idea. That's actually also how QuickTime began. Uh, there was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where the, the character Data, which was a, an android, was listening to multiple pieces of classic music all at the same time. And the engineers at Apple saw that episode and said, well, shoot, there's no reason we can't have QuickTime and have it play multiple pieces of music all at the same time. 
we're, we're inspired by these pieces of fiction. We're inspired to reach beyond what our current capabilities are. But we're in this middle of this transition. We're, we're both in a transition to touch and making touch be as powerful or as useful as the computer is currently. And we're also in this transition to voice interfaces backed by AI as sort of the least intensive interface for the user. So this is about the transition to pro apps for iOS. I wanted to cover some of those apps can be. So for, for pro apps, I like to think of categories as the jobs to be done. There's photography, video, audio, uh, development, and, and writing. Now, I've, I've left out 3D work because I can't think of a single app like Maya for iOS yet. But um, honestly, it's, it's been a few years since Apple did a bake-off with Maya on PC and Maya on Apple on stage at a keynote. I, I feel like Apple's kind of neglecting 3D work, 3D work as well. So Apple talks a lot about photography, and we see all of the shot on iPhone ads all over the place. Uh, Filmic Pro and ProCam are among the best for image capture. For editing, there's, there's Pixelmator, there's Lightroom, there's Adobe Photoshop Fix, and Snapseed. And they're all surprisingly capable. You can do a ton of things in, in Pixelmator. Now, it's not as, as competent as say, a Photoshop or a Lightroom, but it's, it's really robust. For audio, and this is something I work with a little bit with the podcast, uh, there's Ferrite, which is a handy multi-track recorder and editor. There's Auphonic, which is automated, configurable, denoising, and, and audio fixing. Uh, I use that every week. There's Steinberg Cubasis. There's ImageLine FL Studio. And one of the things that's interesting about this, I said that before that it's hard to make a living as a developer for iOS. And when I look at Steinberg Cubasis, right? Cubasis 2 is $49 for iOS. That's the kind of app that when I was doing sequencing with MIDI on, on a computer years ago, I would have readily paid three or 400 bucks for. So, well, it's, it's harder for developers on the other side of that it's gotten a lot more accessible for end users. It's, it's easier to get at these things, it's easier to get about them and get into them, where the price was a barrier in the past. I mentioned developers, and developers for iOS is a tricky subject. Um, this is why we're still in a transition. But one of the hallmarks of an operating system becoming mature is, is when it's self-hosted. And what that means in development terms is that you can compile the operating system from source code while running the operating system. It's compiling on itself. And that's a major victory as not part of operating system development. It's, it's really theoretical for us outside of Apple since we're not compiling Darwin for iPad, but it's that level of maturity that says that the system is capable and ready to be used as a developer tool. In terms of user-facing developer tools, uh, workflow, is an automation application that's fully configurable that was bought by Apple this year. Pythonista is an application that allows you to create Python code complete with interfaces and run it directly on iOS. And you can actually share your Python code via Dropbox so it's not limited to necessarily being stuck on your iOS device. Uh, Xscope is a developer's tool that helps in the development of applications. It works in combination with a Mac to make sure that your, your user interface works on the device that you're targeting. 
And I'm really encouraged by the presence of Swift Playgrounds on iPad because Swift Playgrounds shows that you can code on an iPad and it's a short step from there to making something that allows you to take that and put it on an app store. Uh, where we're seeing the very, very beginning of a birth of something like an Xcode for iOS. And once we have that, uh, it strikes me that Apple's focus will be on developers for iPad just as much as it is for developers on Mac. You know, people talk about how difficult it can be using a touch interface to try and code, right? And Apple's tried to ease this in Swift Playgrounds with a coding keyboard. I put this picture up because this is the Famicom Game Maker developer's game console. This is the thing that was used to make SNES games or Super Nintendo Entertainment System games years ago. It's got a trackpad, a trackball connected to it. This is the machine that the game Kirby's Dreamland was made on, using the trackball as the only input device. They made a whole video game using just the trackball. And it was one of those things where the developer, uh, Masahiro Sakurai, was doing it, and he was doing it to prove the concept, and he just ended up doing the whole game. And when he did it and showed his work, everyone else was kind of astounded because that wasn't exactly how you were supposed to go about it. You know, you, you're supposed to make your demo of it and then go back and use real developer tools. But he did it using a trackball, so it's totally possible. He actually also made um, one of the other games, Kirby games, also using this system. He was going to do it for uh, Nintendo 64. He did it on this. So he said that it was like using a lunchbox to make lunch. That's how difficult it was. The We're, we're sort of at that point with touch right now. But all of the hints are there that it's getting better. This is a, an image of workflow. So here within workflow, we have all of these different types of, of action subjects, tweet, share with extensions, send message. And over here is our workflow, which is get the latest photo, include screenshots, save it to Dropbox, create a short URL, copy the short URL to the clipboard. This is the sort of thing that we see in Automator, but Automator never really got widespread adoption. It, it had a cult following. This has a lot more widespread adoption. And of course, Swift Playgrounds, which I think is one of the coolest things going. I mentioned video, and one of the difficulties and one of the things that Neil and I talk about regularly on the podcast is what is the Final Cut Pro for iOS? And you know, he and I use iMovie on iOS, which we like a lot more than using iMovie or Final Cut for that matter on the desktop. Here is Pinnacle's Studio Pro by Corel, and it was formerly called Avid Studio. And it has all of the kinds of features that you'd look for from a Final Cut for iOS. There are other kinds of apps. When we change about the way that we work and change the way we think about the way we work, so Filmic Studio is still a, a video app as well for video capture, not for video editing. And it's, it's up to snuff. It's been used uh, for movies that have shown at Sundance, award winners at Cannes. So the tools are there if we adapt ourselves to them a little bit. Sling Studio is another one. Sling Studio just got bought by DirecTV. And what Sling Studio does is you send a bunch of GoPros out into the world all on the same Wi-Fi network. You can also use iPhones, things like that. And you use an iPad as your video controller to be able to switch between all the different video sources live. And you're basically editing, editing, controlling the cameras for live streaming from an iPad. 
And of course, writers. Writers have it easy, right? Text editors of all sizes and shapes. There's Ulysses, there's IA Writer, Editorial. Editorial's cool because Editorial also combines all the power of Python into it. So you can run Python scripts from within your text editor to do things to your text. It's kind of neat. Uh, workflow, as I mentioned. I mentioned voice before. Uh, so I'm not going to close just by naming apps. I, I wanted to talk about Siri for just a second and then I'll wrap up. So we said that a pro app is a set of small capabilities streamlined and configurable. And, and people think that Siri and voice in general is a toy or, or a failure, uh, especially when it doesn't understand. But we've, we've, we're missing something. And one of the things we're missing is that it's very early days. Uh, and two, that people naturally gravitate from the most friction to the very least. Provided that it hears you and doesn't require to use weird syntax, voice is the least friction interface for large numbers of people. And that's where voice is getting. It's right now, when you talk to Amazon Alexa, for example, you have to say, hey, Alexa, tell this other thing to do this other action, right? Hey, Alexa, tell my thermostat to set the temperature. Or if you have GE appliances, it's, hey, Alexa, tell Victoria to set, my, you know, to set the temperature on my oven to bake for 350, right? So there's an awkward kind of syntax there. And the same thing is true of Google Home right now, where you have to say something like, okay, Google, uh, let's see, okay, Google, start Stranger Things from Netflix on my TV, on my Chromecast. And so it's this, this staged construction. But we're, we're advancing past that kind of staged, contrived construction pretty quickly. And you're going to start seeing voice in a lot more places and in a lot more contexts. Um, you know, one of the contexts that I think about voice going is in the retail environment, where when it comes to something like food ordering, I can get my food ordered and the text shown up on a display just as well from a voice system as I can from a human being. And so at some point, we're, we're going to see job replacement by voice. With voice, you can streamline a number of small capabilities into voice commands. You know, for it to be a pro app, it has to be configurable. So configuration is modifiers by voice, right? If I want to say lighting party mode, I've got my lighting, and I've got a modifier, and it's going to sample the microphone, it's going to set the lights to pulse with the beat of the music, and it's going to set color to cycle so that I've got pulsing disco lights. Now, disco lights isn't exactly a pro app, I, I admit, but it, it fits this idea that we can configure things by voice. Now, one of the oldest things that happens in movies is this. Um, and I think there's enough to enhance, release it to my screen. Enhance the reflection in her eye. Let's run this through video enhancement. Edgar, can you enhance this? Hang on. I've been working on this reflection. So this is the, the classic movie trope of zoom and enhance. And there's actually evidence of this going back to the 1940s, where, where people were doing this kind of thing in science fiction or detective procedurals. Uh, one of the ones that I saw was, was actually... They took a photograph, put it on a cylinder, and put a needle on it, and then had it remotely send to another cylinder and needle on the other end miles away to reproduce a photograph, sort of a very early kind of internet idea. Um, but the zoom enhance thing has been a trope for ages. It was in uh, Blade Runner, with Decker sitting in front of the TV and shouting at the TV, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, okay, print, kind of thing. And that's one of the things that has come to fruition. Google has their neural network that does this super resolution. And there's also one on GitHub that's a neural enhance. And that's actually a bad screenshot because that's showing it before it enhances. What they're doing is, is obviously they can't create information in the image that isn't there. But by using the neural network, they can 
um, digitally hallucinate in the missing information, as it were. So it's not the sort of thing that ought to be used in court evidence by a detective, right? But it's, but it's totally the thing that fixes your photographs when they're not sharp enough. And this is available to us now. So it's not a far reach to have it kicked off by voice to get the result that we want. It could totally lend itself to voice as a part of a workflow. So a pro app is a collection of small capabilities that's been streamlined to accomplish larger tasks, but is also reconfigurable by the user. And that's true whether it's for a Mac Pro or a MacBook Pro with Thunderbolt 3 and modular accessories strung off the back of it, or touch, or where we're going in the future with voice. Thank you. So I wanted to uh, get an idea of, of who's here and, and get some of your comments and questions. Uh, just as a show of hands, how many people consider themselves pro users? They do work for, okay. And uh, what about developers? Do we have any people who work in development? Cool. Good show of hands. Does anybody have any specific questions they'd like to start off with? Okay, we, sorry, we don't have a mic, so you have to yell at us. Who did we forget? We forgot IT. They're Every, Everybody forgets IT. They are absolutely I worked in terrible. IT, everybody forgot about me all the time. The, the nice thing about working in IT is that you make all the decisions about what people are going to get or not get, as the case may be. IT used to have a big track at WWDC, and, and that's kind of fallen by the wayside. IT had a big track. There used to be the XServe and the Pro Raids. Yeah, they don't sell those anymore, so. Yeah. Um, IT is an interesting one. Uh, there's, there's always going to be a need for IT, especially for infrastructure, uh, networking. You know, you remember when Duke introduced the, uh, the, the iPhones program and they, they gave iPhones out to their freshman class, incoming class, and they had a misconfigured Cisco router, I think it was, and a lot of the iPhones had trouble getting on the network. So e even in this world of touch and devices that just work and we rely on them, we think they're perfect as they come out of the box, we still need IT to support it because otherwise we, we have no interconnectivity. Uh, IT is always going to be a thing. I think. There's, there's a lot of IT people that work inside of Apple. If, you, if you're at WWC, they don't have maybe sessions for, but you see all the IT people that work and set up the Wi-Fi and everything to make, make systems work, so they're aware of it. Anybody have any questions to start off with? In the back there? You might have to like draw on a whiteboard or something. <laughs> um, so with the advancement of cloud computing, do you see the next uh, say wave of Apple Pro apps kind of going towards cloud, kind of like uh, Adobe has, where basically you store and save up to cloud, or you see them using the sort of drive? For for pro apps? Yeah. You're talking about uh, doing Well, for, uh, for Apple's apps, uh, especially for Logic and Final Cut, you're working with so much data that that becomes somewhat of a bottleneck to, to put all the data that you're working with onto the cloud all the time. I mean, Apple has made cloud a, a core part of their apps, and, and they even starting in, uh, what year was it, that they introduced iCloud as kind of being well, like one of their three platforms? There, there was iTools, and then .me, and .mac, and well, then iCloud. And iCloud was... Steve Jobs' WWDC, it was like 2011. Mm. It came out with like, here's our three platforms, and yes. iCloud was one of them. And since then, it's become a, uh, a central thing of, or here's how to work with apps, just like making that 
uh, a natural way to develop into apps. But for, for Apple's props specifically, you're working with just, in, in many cases, terabytes of data that you're, you're working with. So moving that to a cloud is, is harder. Um, there are providers that, that support that, though. So the, the limitation is, is twofold, right? It's bandwidth and it's storage costs on the other end. And you know, we, we currently have storage providers that are happy to sell 100 gigabytes or 50 gigabytes like Dropbox or Box do. Uh, Apple will sell 50 gigabytes, 200 gigabytes or more, but bandwidth still has to catch up. You know, you, you can have gigabit fiber to your house, but unless you're going directly to that cloud, you're going to have slowdowns or hiccups or problems in the middle path. Uh, I, I think eventually we get there and eventually Apple would like to get there because they, they like having you within all of iCloud. But for pro uses for the foreseeable future, I think it's probably local storage. That's definitely one of those things that uh, where technology, there's a sweet spot of technology that keeps changing. I mean, who would have thought a few years ago that we would have cell phones that have, you know, it's quite regular to have 40, what is it, 40 gigabyte or, or what is the bandwidth of LG or 4G or um, 4, 4G yeah. <laughs> uh, networks? I mean, you can kind of commonly get 40, in some places 100 download. Um, that's incredible. I mean, that, would, that used to be requiring wired ethernet uh, so there may be in the future where that becomes a faster thing where uh, if, you, if you look at the kind of cloud capacity that Apple's building, it's pretty tremendous. And if, you, if you've seen any of these sites that they're building. Uh, the main I've, North Carolina site with the, the one was, side is the building, the other side is the solar farm that's the size of the building. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible how fast things are changing. But yeah, like you're saying, I, I don't think that's in the near term. Uh, you know, you look at the technologies that Apple's building, built into the, the latest MacBook Pro and essentially coming for the iMac and uh, the Mac Pro later with Thunderbolt 3, that's, that's the kind of solution for the workload right now is putting that on a local disk. There's a question from the gentleman in the red plaid shirt. You? Yeah. No, you didn't have one? I thought I'm sorry, I mistake. <laughs> Go ahead, please. To follow up on that, do you think that, I mean, like iCloud Photos worked pretty well using the thumbnail, and then they, but you know, it's frustrating, as soon as you want to do something, yeah. then you know, they, Slow connection, then you can't get that photo. You think they'll be able to do more of like, say, caching that instruction set? We have an edit list and all that. And kind of maybe make offline more possible. That's something that or something like repeat the question. Yeah, so there's something that you're talking about specifically with with apps like iPhoto and and the uploading. Where like, where, right. You know, I have all my photos on my phone, but most of them are up in iCloud. I, I ran into that. So the question is. Uh, you know, one of the conditions that you have is where you're using photos, for example, you tap on a photo and you have to wait for it to download before you can act on it. Uh, and do we think that Apple's going to in, in implement edit decision lists where we can go through several actions while it's still downloading and have those actions apply once it arrives? I ran into that just recently. I took a screenshot and I was going to just edit the screenshot to post it somewhere. And I immediately took the screenshot, go into photos to pull it up to edit it. You can pull it up, and it's it's a, you know a screen resolution copy, but you can't edit it. It's you know you get this clock icon going on saying, "Hey, wait, we're going to download it again from the server that we just put it on." And you also see it on the desktop on the Mac. You know if you have your desktop synced with iCloud, you copy a file to your desktop, and it's immediately usable on the Mac. But you see uh, in the Finder, it'll say the the file size, and it'll suddenly be 2K. And then like builds back up, and so you know that that's kind of a new thing that they're 
working out the details on. Um, I don't know how long that's been out. Is that was that released last uh, last year? Is that year. older than that? So yeah. it's pretty recent. I think there's a lot of things like you could do, like what you're talking about, the editing lists and um, uh, same kind of differential copies, and also just kind of machine language learning of figuring out what, how much you can save um, without having to uh, figuring out more of that more intelligently of how you're going to make stuff uh, accessible on your computer rapidly without wasting a lot of time. Waiting for things to go back and forth. Gentleman there. It just occurs to me while you're talking, but the photos is a nice example where some things are features that are just going to get rolled out over time. It takes a few years, like the metadata a lot of times can sync between the, the iPhone version and the Mac version. So you, you tag things and the tags don't come over. Presumably they'll fix that. But then there's also like a design decision that seems to be part of Apple right now, which is sort of anti pro, in that you never get any diagnostics about what's going on with the cloud syncing. Like photos is just a great example. If you want to know, like, have my photos synced, how long is it going to take to sync, like, where, where is this data sitting? There's no way to look into that. And, in, like, sort of, I would define a pro use as being, I, as the user, have more insight into how the system itself is operating. And Apple's approach to the cloud right now, I, I, I think, what does the cloud have to do with this at all? But, Apple's approach to the cloud seems very unpro. If they want to get pro about the cloud, give me more information about, about what kind of speeds I'm seeing, uh, what, what kind of bottlenecks, uh, let me cache things locally, let me force that. You know, like 100 applications like that. Okay, for the live stream, the, the, the comment is that uh, Apple's approach to the, the cloud and to photos is a good example, is that it's very much a black box, that you as the user can't investigate and troubleshoot or see what's happening when pieces of information don't sync across, like like keywords or metadata, things like that, that um, that, that it's sort of an anti-pro position, that you can't look in and, and sort of diagnose what's going on with your own computer. The just work approach to the cloud is, is, is sort of anti-pro. The, the approach to the cloud is, is Well, I think Apple's... Uh, I mean, Apple's cloud offerings are mainly targeted towards consumers, obviously. Uh, the, the other thing that's kind of, I, I totally feel your pain about the, the black box that Apple does. And part of that is making things simple. But another part of it is, I think, uh, obscuring how things are done because it could change. So it's kind of like an API of uh, you don't really know what's happening because that allows Apple the ability to change things under the surface and you're not you don't become dependent upon something that, and there's, that's the explanation, but there's also a frustration that comes with that. I mean, uh, th this is kind of not exactly the same thing, but if you plug in an iPhone to different power sources, uh, it'll charge at different speeds. You have no idea what speed you're charging at. You have to look at the box. Is this a 10 watt adapter or 12 watt adapter? Uh, Apple could put that complexity in the interface and say, you're charging as fast as this can go. Or they could just sort of make it so that you have, it's kind of a thing you have to figure out. So. That's an example of complexity, hiding complexity, in a way that's sort of annoying. Uh, another example, um, you had mentioned, um, uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> in, in terms of changing things, uh, the file system, Apple just upgraded everyone to a new file system on iOS. And if people were aware of the file system and were directly working with it, that wouldn't be possible. And that's why the Mac 
has not got a, the Apple file system yet is because there's a lot of people that use applications that make some uh, make some assumptions about the file system or in some way have other complication that if they change that it would break all kinds of apps and it would uh, there's problems with language that they're still working out. But with iOS, because of the simplicity, they can just go in and make radical changes to the foundation of the operating system, and it just works. So th there's kind of a, a give and take along those lines, and it, um, some of it is the result is frustration, and some of it is simplification. One, one of the things that I think of, and I'll, I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I get this in before I forget it, is that I, I feel like we're seeing development of OS X in, in some ways be led by development of iOS. You know, there was, there was back around 10.6, uh, Leopard, Snow Leopard time frame, development was, was separate um, and, and going down separate paths. These functions for macOS because this is what macOS users needed. These functions for iOS because these, that's what iOS needed. And that they, they hit a roadblock where they just needed more developers in order to get it out. So they delayed OS 10 to be able to get iOS out at the time, I think was what happened. And ever since that point, I, I feel like the, the things that they want to do on iOS drive the changes that they make on Mac OS in, in some ways. And Photos is a good example of that. The cloud is a good example of that, where they say, and, and, and it's true for other of the, the applications like Notes or Reminders and things like that, where they say, we want to have cloud syncing for Notes, great. Mac OS is also going to get cloud syncing, but again, it's that black box. Um, but the, these, the, the idea of what they want to deliver and who they want to deliver it for comes out of the iOS thinking first, is, is my observation. I, I don't know if everyone else feels that way, but that's... I mean, there's there's definitely a reason why that's happening is because so much of Apple's revenue comes from iOS. But the other, the other side of that that I kind of mentioned um, was there is so much money that's going into the development of iOS that is then coming back to the Mac and bringing solutions to things that... Um, so part of that is that they have to figure out how much or, or what level they're supporting pro users and how much are they supporting pro users in the sense of uh, creating solutions that are really work for pro users because that's very different from, from consumer. And for a while, it was kind of looking like, what is Apple going to do? For example, with the Mac Pro, before they made their announcement, um, it wasn't clear what they're going to do. And now they've, they've at least given the roadmap, which is kind of unusual for Apple in saying this is what we're planning to do in the you know, near term. It's not this year, but we're coming up with this modular, and that's the intent. And then um, also working with you know, new, new IMAX is, is part of that strategy. So it's, there's a lot of the market is changing, and the demand for things are changing. And Apple itself is such a different company than it was even five years ago in terms of like where they make their money. So that's... There's a, there's a question in the back. Yes. Yes. Uh, I was wondering, who's housing all this data? It's founding data. Like, is Apple doing it themselves or are they using Amazon web services? Or what are they using? So the, the question is, who is housing all of this data? Is, is Apple housing it themselves? Are they using an outside provider like Amazon Web Services? Uh, the, the answer is Apple is housing all of this data themselves. Uh, I'm getting a lot of head shaking. Okay. Go on. Right. So, so for services that they provide, but for your user data, they're, they're housing that on their own. 
is my understanding. Okay. So I believe there was a comment, uh, there was a, um, I, I'm trying to remember where this came from, but they had a pretty significant contract with, was it Amazon and they moved to Google? It was like a competitive, we're shifting. Yeah. I think one of the other companies actually opened that, I mean, that revealed that. Amazon but, does 50% of the, you know, the class yeah. work. It does. The way you know that Yes. <laughs> when when yeah. well, that's also an example. I mean, we're talking about the the black box. I mean, if 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 Apple can put themselves, I mean, they're the interface to the consumer, and they have all this other stuff underneath them, whether it's Intel's chips or. Um, Amazon's web services, they can make those kind of changes without anyone really knowing if they keep everyone in the dark about what's happening underneath the surface. Until that outage happens. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm a special producer of an LGBT news show called Gay USA. I've uh, been on here for about 32 years. And uh, I used to use a lot of Apple software, Final Cut, and um, I still use Aperture for photos. These days, I bypass Final Cut Pro. I just take the raw file or a compressed raw file and show just 28 gigs down to 2 gigs and just post it directly to YouTube as opposed to compressing it. I also used to use iWeb, uh, you know, when .Mac was a hosting service. And so, like, there's a lot of services that, like, are gone, you know, as well as, like, I have, um, Lots of six terabyte hard drives that I use, and I have 200 gigs of iCloud storage with Apple, but I rarely use that for anything. You know? So, thoughts about, you know, I, I'd love to be able to use my iPad Pro and not turn on my iMac, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but like I find if I really want to get production work done, I have to sit at my iMac. You know, like if I want to just be a user of Um, you know, I can't discipline myself to use an iPad Pro to edit photos and things like that. You know, as well as access to my libraries and my hard drives. You're kind of talking about the difference between iPad as a user, um, as a tool, and, and also, yeah. yeah, for as a compared to a Mac. But you and were saying that you thought uh, that iPad would become. I, I feel like we're at the cusp, or just before the, the, the cusp of that kind of transition. You know, we, we, we see app developers creating these tools that are capable of doing a lot of these kinds of tasks, even if the workflow isn't exactly the same. You know, you can certainly take video and put it in iMovie or Pinnacle and drop it straight to YouTube. It doesn't have to be done on an iMac. You can do it on an iOS device. Um, you, you may not want to do it because it's not comfortable, because the workflow doesn't work the way that you're accustomed to or the way that you feel it should, and that's, that's fine. But I think there are uh, a number of users who are exposed to these touch devices, who are exposed to iPads, who don't actually have a computer of their own yet. And that's what they know. And between app developers continuing to improve their apps and these users who are not keyboard centric from the beginning. When those two converge, we, we end up with a place where 
it becomes natural to do the workflow on that kind of device. We're, we may not be there yet, but I think we're headed there. There's a lot of talk about convergence, about people, um, people get kind of the sense that Macs are going away, or originally it was this idea that that's kind of Microsoft's position is that a tablet and a computer should be kind of one and the same and you could pull the screen off and it's a tablet and you uh, put the, it back together and it's a PC. strategy, right? Yeah. And Apple has been very resistant to that in saying we have iPads over here and we have Macs over here and they have a different interface and they're intentionally different and they, they work in different ways. One has an accessible file system. The other is more of this kind of black box sort of simple thing. Uh, iPads and all iOS devices uh, are running apps that we wouldn't even have thought of possible a few years ago. And the the processing power that Apple's putting in iPad Pro now with the A10 and what's coming up, I mean, that's bumping up into the bottom of where Intel's desktop chips are. So there's definitely going to be faster and faster iPads, but at the same time, the the way you use a device that's the format of a, a an iPad um, is one thing. Another thing is, what people are used to. So for those of us that grew up on a tablet it's, or a, a conventional computer, or a notebook, it's kind of difficult to go to a tablet sometimes. Whereas people who have never used a computer before are much more likely to readily accessibly do that. You mentioned uh, when you were talking before about you, you used your iPad Pro for a lot of things and just because it's um, the convenience of portability and being able to move around and things. Um, those are all things that are kind of in flux. I don't think Apple, I mean, Apple's made comments saying that, you know, the iPad Pro is, we think it's the best expression of a PC and, you know, it's gonna, they don't say that for the Mac though, because they have no reason to get rid of the Mac. Mac is a $6 billion quarter business that's separate from the $6 billion quarter business of the iPad. And Apple has no reason to wanna put those things together or to shift everyone from the Mac to an, an iPad. They wanna have both. So they're serving, they're serving two markets. Well, I mean, they're serving, yeah, there's some people that it makes sense to be in front of a, a computer, and there's some people that makes it more accessible to be in front, and it's a much larger market. That's revenue numbers. The unit numbers are obviously very different. There's a lot more people that are using iOS than are using Macs. So I don't, I don't really think that um, Apple is pushing Mac users to iPads the way that a lot of people kind of have the sense of. Obviously, they, they want to make the iPad the best computer it is for the people that that really appeals to. Uh, I think going forward, we're going to see a lot more, and, and Apple's even mentioned that with in the comments about the, the upcoming uh, Macs, kind of re reaffirming that they are working to make pro Macs and that, that are useful for that audience that wants that. So, yeah. I'm not suggesting that the Mac goes away. I'm suggesting that the, the tools become available on iOS and that people... Yeah, we'll see a lot more crossover, especially yeah. with, with kind of cloud tools where you can work on your iPhone or, or iPad or whatever, and it's just automatically there on your conventional computer as well. So, uh, the beginning of the century, there was this great... Uh, this century or the... Night? Okay. Uh, there was a great laptop for the uh, Panasonic telephone. Yes. Yeah. And I always wish that Apple would make a device like that. And I think the iPad Pro is the very feel, I mean, aside from the screen, right probably breaks screen, easier, right? Right, right, <laughs> right not a stuff. But. but if you put it in a, in, in a nice case, yeah. it, it'll serve you better than a laptop would in a, a particularly uh, hostile environment, let's say a desert or a dirty place, there's less space for dirt. Yeah. As opposed to a MacBook Pro. Coming back to the hardware again, 
from my team's perspective, I get tired of going to client sites and putting a Mac Mini into a rack and then having to buy a shelf to put it on and Velcro to Velcro to that shelf so that it'll stay put and it won't be pulled by the Ethernet cable, et cetera. What I need out what IT needs out for the day is bring back the excerpt, basically a Mac Mini in a rack mount configuration with the ports, et cetera, on the back. And one on the front, and make it so that when I boot it up, so when you, when that OS 10 server came out, you used to be able to uh, configure it with a mobile. Mm -hmm. You had to go to the machine and uh, IP address. Right. Yeah. You can't do that. You have to have a screen. So they need, so I go to a client site, I got to tell them, well, we, we've got to buy this monitor. You know, so it's 13 inch monitor. So I'm going to repeat your question for the for being online. Um, you're talking about from an IT perspective, asking when is the I, the XR coming back, uh, a server developed by Apple. So I don't think it is. But yeah, right. So if you look at the the, the XR that uh, the product that Apple originally sold, and they made it sort of a central product for a while. I mean, it was, but that was before iOS. It, it was it was kind of like we have the Mac. What are we gonna how, where are we gonna grow? And so server was like, we're going to try to go there. And they were making pretty good, pretty good hardware, and it was sold for a pretty good price. But uh, the thing is, the, it's a similar problem with today's Mac Pro, in that they're producing a product that's very integrated and very easy to use for people who don't really want a computer that's necessarily integrated and easy to use. So they kind of miss where the market is. And that's really important to, to target the market and supply what the market wants, because you can make something, in some cases, you can make a product that tells the market, this is what you really need, which Steve Jobs is really good at. You know, he, he was saying, you know, this is what you really need. Is you, don't, you don't need a, a, a flip phone, you need an iPhone. And it was like, yeah, we do. Yeah, because if you, do, if, you, if you develop enough value that people see that that's what they want, you can do that. But Apple wasn't successful at doing that for the IT market because a lot of those people already knew what they needed and they weren't going to be sold. And, and, so, and it's also a much smaller market, so it's harder to. And it's also dictated by a lot of people who are in IT as opposed to consumers that you can market to. And but, but so a lot of the people here who, particularly in video and audio production, you've got all this stuff in a rack, and you've got this crappy Mac Pro, which is this funny shape, doesn't fit in, it takes up too much space, when you can just make it yeah. one or two high unit. And so I want to point out that when Apple told the press that they were bringing back the Mac Pro as a modular system, they also said that they were going to refresh the Mac Mini. So yes, you still end up with the trouble of, of having to get Velcro and a monitor and, and everything to be able to use that Mac Mini on a shelf that you have to build, but it's at least not going to be the awkward shape that the, uh, the Mac Pro has been. So there's that. The other comment that you mentioned was about the Panasonic Toughbook, or the, and the the idea that the iPad Pro is that that ruggedized computer, uh, accepting the screen. You know, if you put an iPad Pro in a Pelican case, you can take it out in hostile environments, and you have a, a really good rugged computer for field work. And I, I think that's true. One of the things that I, I used to think about was how there were features in other laptops that I really liked that I wished were available in an Apple laptop and an OS 10 running laptop. The Toughbook was one of them. The other thing that I used to wish for a lot was uh, Lenovo, or ThinkPad as it was back in the day, 
used to have drains from the keyboard so that when someone poured liquid into your keyboard, the water would drain out the sides and avoid the, the logic board. You and IT have probably had that problem before. Yeah. No, no, no one ever spills coffee in your keyboard, do they? Um, I, I always wondered, you know, why why that wasn't something that Apple pursued. And you know, the only answer that I ever came up with was that it wasn't a part of their vision for size and space and internal capacities. Yeah. But uh, it wasn't another aspect of of you're talking about, like with the Toughbook and and targeting a, a product, um, and also kind of with related to IT. There's a lot of problems that are expensive to solve, and, and figuring out what the what the direction is. And so Apple can either put a lot of money into figuring out how to solve problems for a market like IT, where a lot of people are going to be resistant to their solutions, maybe, uh, as opposed to solving problems for consumers, which Apple's clearly better at making money on. So if you look at uh, one of the things that Apple's done in, in terms of like what you're talking about with the Toughbook, this is the first waterproof computer they made. Next year they made this waterproof. So that's the kind of thing where you see consumer solving a, a difficult problem and it trickles down into other products. So, I mean, there may be, you know, it's not difficult to guess that maybe we're going to have an iMac or an iPad that is uh, resistant to those kind of environments because it's used in hostile environments and industrial applications, things like that. And we may see a lot of that eventually work its way into uh, desktop Macs. So I think that's the kind of things that Apple's working to solve just because that's where the money is. So there's a lot of things that I would like Apple to solve that are just not financially viable sort of directions for the company to do, and it's kind of a bummer, but it's kind of also reality. Yeah, question from the gentleman in the red plaid shirt in the back. Just wondering, do you foresee that Apple will release Final Cut Pro or the iPad? Because I originally bought the iPad Pro in 2015 thinking the limit the problem was internal storage. Mm. Is Apple going to release Final Cut Pro as an iOS application for the iPad Pro? I, I feel like they're not going to do it in the near future. And I, I feel like there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is they don't think that the interface on, on this guy is the same as the interface on the iPad Pro. And they're well aware that, that Final Cut users would want that interface to be familiar enough that a lot of it would transfer over. Uh, the Pinnacle application that was Avid before it was renamed is, is a little closer to that, although it's not identical either. Um, but I think there are other things that need to be addressed about the, the iPad Pro and iOS to make it really fulfill the promise of, of what the hardware can do for a Pro user. So they've, they've got a little longer timeline for that kind of thing. Um, the, the gentleman with the, the jacket and then you. <laughs> so you answered the question already. Apple's only going to make products for iOS that are consumer-driven, pretty much. The uh, iOS cannot handle the data of uh, professional products, products 4K and 6K and 8K, if that ever happens. So I don't think that's going to happen. I, I can't see that happening at all anytime soon. I mean, iOS is still going to be... A the, the web, the web uh, release, 
Well, but so the 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 comment is that iOS is is never going to be professional ready. That it it's not ready for 4K or 8K or things like that. And we we can take 4K video on an iPhone at this time, can't we? Yeah, I mean you can. It's like lower quality 4K. But if you think about what the iPad came from, it was really. Uh, it really came from the video tile, this, this idea that you have a sort of a, a simple, dumb screen that gives you, it's attached to a really fast network and it's running software somewhere else. And uh, that was kind of the idea in the late, what was late 90s or whenever that was mm -hmm. a thing. Uh, they were experimenting with, it required a lot of infrastructure. And Apple's kind of solution to that was, here's the tablet, but it's running native hardware and we now have fast enough native, native um, the ability to run local software that you can do pretty impressive stuff. And, and the, the fact you can edit video on your phone and that's my phone is actually better at editing video than this computer is. And this is not a new computer, but uh, it's progressing rapidly. So you can't edit the full quality 4K, 8K video that you're working with on a desktop workstation. But there are applications where you could do things like work on a proxy of something. So you're you're basically working in thumbnails you and you're making a decision, list, decision right? list or something. So there's those kind of applications. But um, obviously, you know, the iPad is one class of tool and Macs are another class of tool. And I think they're going to remain um, differentiated quite by a huge gap for a period of time. But we're going to see a lot of cross-pollination and, and things that uh, I think at some point Apple is going to be taking the processors that they're building, um, and we speculated about you know the GPU that Apple's creating, and with the hardware technology that they're using that to drive iOS, if they put that in a Mac, not necessarily replacing Intel, but being able to do a lot of things really fast, very specialization for working with things like video and encryption and things like that, you could uh, enhance the ability of Macs and also enhance uh, mobile iOS devices to do things that you wouldn't think uh, of doing on a tablet or a phone. So, I mean, there, there is some kind of middle ground for working with things like that. The gentleman here in the second row. So I know this is uh, total speculation. But, uh, That's our specialty. Yes. <laughs> well, it's softball. Right? The, uh, so, traditionally, Apple's released the iPads in the spring. Here we are, May 1st. It looks like there's definitely not going to be any spring event uh, unless uh, Could be. maybe they were just waiting for the Apple campus to be ready. Well, I think there's an expectation that um, iPads are still coming, new iPads. Uh, the kind of reconfiguration with the 2017 iPad, uh, I think that was kind of preparing things for the next iPad. Um, so it wasn't a huge event. They didn't, they didn't throw a lot of attention about it. It was kind of like, here's our new lineup of iPads. It's simpler. And, right. Here's, right. Here's an affordable model. If you haven't gotten an iPad or you, your iPad is very old, here's the one for you. That, that was what this model was for. It's kind of like the iPhone SE when that came out. It was like, here's yeah. something for this market. And then later, you know, we're going to have our big phone. But the iPad Pro was introduced in the fall. That was a September release, yeah. the 12-inch model. The 9.7 right. was a springtime model. Right. Um, there are some times that when they're waiting for a technology to happen. So, like you, you mentioned with with 
A11 chips or whatever is coming out and waiting for that to happen. Um, there's also other, uh, what is the new interface that's uh, working its way out there? Um, USB 3.0 support and things like that. You know, mm -hmm. there, there are a number of like Type enabling C. kind of things that, that could be holding up the, the newest stuff. But. Gentleman here in the front. So, yeah, um, I work most mostly in video production and audio. So the the, the need the need for the for the Mac is mass storage and greater screen real estate. Um, so I mean that's that's the thing I'm really excited to hear the, the more speculation about. But uh, one of the one of the other things is just how about the, uh, the the joining, like connecting an iPad Pro. I mean, there are a couple of third parties that have en enabled it to have like a Wacom type capabilities. I think that's something that would be a very exciting thing. Do you think that's likely to be uh, done by Apple and house So your your question is uh, integration of you know, using iOS devices with Macs, and especially you know, like obviously if you have this huge screen that's um, high quality screen and like the really um, high accuracy the Apple Pencil. The one of the core things that Apple's been doing is with continuity and, and having devices talk to each other, which is not only just a useful thing to happen, but it's also a differentiating technology that Apple can deliver because they make computers and mobile devices in a way that a lot of companies only make one or the other or don't have control of the platform. And so Apple's a little bit unique in that. And that's one of the things that they've really been focusing on in terms of being able to sell value is, you know, you can have your watch unlock your Mac or something like that. Um, so being able to use, that's something that I've been wishing for, is being able to use a, a iPad Pro as an input device for your Mac and we're working together. And right now, I don't know to what extent Apple thinks that that's already kind of handled with third-party solutions, but I think there's a lot of a lot tighter integration that Apple can do. And a lot of those things just take take effort to, to kind of get to the point where Apple wants to say this is the official solution. I'm, I'm a little more skeptical because the, 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 the beauty of the pencil and the, the reason that the pencil is appealing to them is that you're, you're touching directly on your, your artwork. You're touching directly on the thing that you're working on. And when you, you put it here and use it as a Wacom or a Wacom and, and have it on your monitor, you've, you've now created that separation that we used to have between where your artwork is and where your device is, where your input device is. There's, there's something that's really valuable to them about having, and then they also believe it's valuable to their users, about having it be the same thing and that you're touching directly on it. I, I, but you can achieve that by having, exactly. right. you know, no, sorry, Microsoft's you, solution to that is to have like right, a huge iPad that like tilts kind of down thing. that you write on. That's, that's the question, is what are they going to do to respond to Surface? And, you know, Apple's, Apple's solution to that is that we don't have a computer with a touch screen that you're constantly putting your arm out. But if you have an iPad that you're working on while you're, you know, and the, the latest MacBook Pros that incorporate the touch bar, that's a step in that direction where you have a dedicated, basically, iOS device that's in the, in the um, system that works. It, it's so integrated with the computer, it is part of the computer. Uh, so you have an interface and you have feedback and direct control things like that. So that, that similar level of, of that integration with a desktop computer makes sense. And, you know, we haven't seen the, the latest iMacs yet, so um, we're expecting Thunderbolt 3 and, and that greater degree of connectivity that you could 
do between uh, devices that's going to be very valuable for a lot of pro users and consumers and in between. Uh, gentleman in orange in the back, yeah. and then Jeff. Uh, Right. So the, the comment is that Apple is is uh, not keeping up with with changes annually. That Apple uh, doesn't pay enough attention to the pro market to be have a consistent definition of what a pro user is, and that to put a workflow together, you have to use several different devices and applications on those devices to to find your way through your task. Um, have I summed it up correctly? Yeah, that's that's an interesting proposition. The idea of a pro Apple ID. I, I think the the problem that would happen is the same thing you said about, you know, someone would give that to their grandmother the same way that they give their grandmother the MacBook Pro that's inappropriate. Um, and we, we see this a lot with betas, right? People download betas all the time. They they download and install things that are clearly expressly said this is not ready for production. This will break your stuff. We we know it's going to break your stuff. Uh, don't do it on a production device. Don't do it on your primary device. And people do it all the time to the point where Apple had to throw their hands up in there and say, you know what, fine, we know you're all doing it. Everyone's sharing UDIDs anyway. We get it. We'll make a public beta program and you can go ahead and do this on your own 
with, with you know, but, but we're still telling you it's going to break your stuff. And people do it. People want to be that user. People want to think that they're they're totally that capable or totally that prepared to be that person. And and you know, it all ends in tears. And I, I think maybe the same thing would happen with with the the pro ID kind of thing. But it's it's a tough problem to solve. Is is how do you how do you address those two different separate types of users and, and how do they self-identify and how do, you, how do you validate or agree with that self-identification? It's, it's not an easy problem. It's a sociological problem. I kind of fantasize the... Have advanced user and user, yeah. which is a great way of it. Well, one of the things that I had IDVD thought of was that. the idea of having like a pro version of macOS where you expose a lot more complication and, and you give people access to things that... Uh, that used to be called kind of shielded, shielded from... Well, I mean, server had a specific intent to it. And one of the problems with server in terms of like missing the market was that it was sort of making server tools, dumbing them down as opposed to like increasing the whole, you know, exposed complexity of interface for people who wanted to get into it. And, you know, if, if, you, are, if you are a pro user developer or working in the command line, there are tools you can get to that with. Um, Apple's the value that Apple adds to a lot of their products in, in so many cases is related to making things easier. That that's the main motivator of a lot of things that they do. So that's just kind of reality. I mean, one of the things I, I, I find, like when I go to the Apple store, I used to be able to go to the Apple store and, and talk to any tech person at the store and they can help them solve my problem. Now I have to find someone who uses the same app that I use, uh, saying, you know, who uses Logic Pro, blah, blah, blah. And find that person for me. Uh, just like when I, you know, and, and I remember when iPhones first became really popular, they were like, you know, I was dealing with people at Apple stores saying, like, I didn't get, I didn't get a job at Apple so I can help grandmothers use their iPhones. You know, and it's like, you know, they kind of lost that kind of nitty gritty of, of the tech stuff that they wanted to be involved with. And like when I call tech support, usually I'm dealing with a rather complex issue since I can't solve it myself and I have to go to this next You have to climb the tiers, yeah. Support. So that's why I kind of like the suggestion of maybe having some sort of pro user kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Skip the first tier and yeah. get to the second tier. So, uh, gosh, there was something that you said that resonated with me for a moment. No, before that, oh, it was about the history of the retail store. So the retail stores, when they first opened, they had a red phone on the desk of the Genius Bar. And when the Genius was stumped, they could pick up the phone and they could get someone in Cupertino and they would skip those tiers, the tier one and tier two, and go straight to a tier three engineer who knew what they were talking about. And that, that phone has obviously gone away. The other thing that happened in the early days of the Apple Store is that uh, Genius was not a position that you could walk in and get hired for. When you walked in and, and you walked in as a Mac specialist, which was the, the regular sales floor role at the time, they've, they've since renamed it, but you served as a regular Mac specialist for a period of time, and then when your manager spotted that you were, um, you had a technical acuity, he would put you up for the Genius position. You would go and do a training camp at Cupertino for, I think it was two or three weeks, and get really embedded with people that were knowledgeable and keep them as your contacts so that when you, you came a problem, problem for a user that you couldn't solve, you could reach out back to those contacts from your training and, and be able to do it. And I don't know that they do that any longer. Someone, they stopped it. Someone yeah. told me that the, they had gotten a job at the Jesus Bar and they had 
Yeah. Okay, Jeff, did you have a question? Yeah, I have actually a couple questions. Okay. Um, one, one of my, I'm a graphic designer, and one of my questions was, do you foresee um, Apple making a graphic, an iMac, which is geared toward a real-world graphic designer, where I could, I understand where they don't want to have a touchscreen Mac. I don't want that either. Yeah, I your arms get real tired flapping I around. I, what I personally envision is, say for instance, you're putting yourself in Photoshop, and you have a virtual canvas, and I can pinch and zoom with my real hand, but with an Apple Pencil, I can actually draw. And I can turn around, I can draw it, zoom in, zoom out, draw. Vector, raster, whatever you have. And you want to do that on the display? On the actual iMac, like a walk, like a walking TV. Do you mean inter interacting with a, a device or like gestures in the air or something sensing where your hands are? Well, I mean, I, I don't want to lose the ability to input with a mouse. I mean, I still want to have that, but I want to be able to rotate, pinch, and zoom with like a, like a virtual canvas. But I still want to be able to Kind of like Minority Report? Where you're, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, that's one of the technologies that Apple bought. We don't know exactly what they're doing with it with PrimeSense. PrimeSense, yeah. And this idea and of having multiple cameras that look at you like like the Microsoft Connect with Xbox, that's sensing where you're at. I mean, that's that's on the forefront of of can it be done? So. Uh, Another question I have for you was, um, like for example, I've used my iPhone all the time, and real world examples, raining outside, your hand gets wet, doesn't work. You're at a barbecue, your hand gets sticky from barbecue sauce, not working. It doesn't work underwater either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just got two the iPhone seven. You can take pictures underwater, but you can't touch the screen because it's capacitance. I just got a Vitamix seven eighty. It's one of these flat screen. It's a touch screen device. You can have white hands. You can have sticky hands. You can egg yolk. Is it is it's it press sensitive? It's a resistive screen, isn't it? No, it's, it's you can you can press buttons. Is, is it yeah. is it more of a, like a physical physical so, press? So flat screen, but yeah. I'm like, there there are two types. There are two different types of touchscreen technology that are prevalent. One is, is called capacitive, where what they're doing is measuring the electrical charge between your finger and the screen. And when that electrical charge changes, they know that that's where your finger is or where your fingers move to. Uh, resistive is one where the screen is composed of different layers and you're actually deflecting the screen to tell where the finger is. And that's one that's common in card stereo dashboards where you have these GPS nav displays. And they've gotten really good to where when you touch, you don't feel it deflect and you can't see it deflect unless you look from the side and get the angle just right where you can kind of tell that it's deflecting. But it, it, for all practical purposes, you can drag on it, which you used to not be able to do on a resistive screen. So they've gotten really good at those. And I would suspect... 3D Touch uses something like that, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's actually like changing the they're, they're of the screen. They're measuring the deflection, I think, a little bit. But it's... it's um, but these resistive screens were always the more affordable screen to buy for these kind of products when you're manufacturing. So I would suspect that, that the product you're talking about is using a really good resistive screen, and that's why it's not the same when your hand is wet. Because they advertise on their website that you could be, you know, you know in the kitchen baking. Well, egg, yeah, in the kitchen it's really wet. That's a design game, requirement. Water, <laughs> egg, yolk, whatever, and it still works. Yeah. Oh, what kind of megapixel of a camera do they have? <laughs> a kitchen device like, with a camera. Like I'm just kidding. Like, for, you know, for Instagramming your food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. The gentleman in the back. 
Yes, sir. Raising. Yes, you know, we have uh, like yes, 15 sir. minutes before they close, I believe. And we want to get to the raffle and let you guys win something. So it says, does anybody lament Apple software by name? And I think Hypercard. Aperture. I'm sure we would hear Aperture. Hyper, Hypercard, yeah. So Hypercard turned into the web? <laughs> well, not exactly. Well, I mean, not exactly, but nothing exactly happens. <laughs> All right, and, uh, sir. Okay, I predict that there'll be a touchscreen Mac in three years because I watch people all the time who are trained by their phones to pinch and zoom, going onto their, onto their laptops and trying to do that. And it's standard now on Windows, so that's why I know that no one wants to have their arm up, but just being able to draw on the screen, being able to pinch and zoom, that the trackpad stuff is too complicated for mainstream users. So your prediction is touchscreens on Macs is going to happen. So I think one, one reason why they're not doing it is because it's fatiguing. Another reason is because it adds significant cost. So if the cost comes down, that could be something that they add. I've, I've had this computer for a really long time, and occasionally I will re reach out and touch something to close a window or something. I don't think it would be that difficult yeah, to add, it, but, but a lot of it is a design sense of, of how you use a computer and doesn't make sense if you're on an iMac to be touching the screen. So maybe the 3D gestures happen before that, but you know, who knows. How many people bought touchpads to operate their Macs is the question. And show of hands. All right, shall we move to the raffle? Yeah, let's do the raffle. Let's find a new one on the iPad. Thank you guys for coming.